We're going to read this morning from Mark 2, verse 1 to 12. When Jesus returned to Capernaum several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room, even outside the door. While he was preaching God's word to them, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, so they dug a hole through the roof above his head. Then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, My child, your sins are forgiven. But some of the teachers of religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, What is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking, so he asked them, Why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven, or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, Stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And the man jumped up, grabbed his mat, and walked out through the stunned onlookers. They were all amazed and praised God, exclaiming, We've never seen anything like this before. Thanks, Mel. I'm going to make all of you jealous this morning because I've got a, a mug of warm tea. I figure with the raspiness of my voice, I may need to soothe it every once in a while this morning. And I say I'm making you jealous because some of you came this morning expecting there to be coffee. And I, and I, and I saw a, a stream of people going to the back where there is now a coffee urn. You know, and just as they get there, they realize that it's not yet finished. And just the look of utter disappointment and despair that flashed across people's faces. But I've been told that it'll be ready in about maybe now 20 minutes, 25 minutes. So if, if in about 20, 20, is it ready now? Now there can be a mass exodus of people going to, uh, to get, their, get their coffee. Well, it is one of those, those Sundays where um, we find ourselves sort of in the in-between spaces. I have to admit it can be also a little bit awkward uh, of a Sunday to know exactly what to, to, uh, to speak about. Um, I noticed Brad at the beginning, at the introduction, was kind of like, well, what do you actually say? I mean, we're already now four days past Christmas. We haven't quite hit the new year yet, so we're not sure if we should say, you know, Merry Christmas or Happy New Year or whatever. And to preach a sermon on a Sunday like this is kind of equally awkward. You're just not quite sure where to go with this. Kind of Christmas has passed, and and really we know so little about Jesus' birth. There's, you know, of course, the one... Um, uh, story of, uh, of Jesus being presented at the temple, um, but we probably have already heard uh, many messages on that particular passage, and then we just get into his life. At the same time, it's not always a good Sunday to either start or continue a series, and so we sort of find ourselves uh, at odds a bit between what was and what will be, and not quite sure what to do with today. Um, I find myself on this Sunday quite often, and I'm kind of like, so where do we actually go, Lord? What is it that, that you need to say to our people? 
one Sunday, or it was a kind of this New Year Sunday, I pulled out a message on suffering. And I'm sure that was very memorable for some of you. Um, uh, you know, it's just not one of the most enjoyable subjects to, to speak on. Um, I actually, for a brief moment, contemplated doing a message uh, this morning um, actually on death and dying. Because the statistics are true. It's something we all deal with. Uh, one out of one dies. And, uh, but I'll spare you that as well. Um, that's uh, maybe for another, another time. It seems like when I have one of these sort of standalone Sundays with kind of a clear agenda, where do we go with this? I, I tend to default to one of my favorite subjects of all. And it's just community about being God's people, about being the church and living in relationship. And I think this is also one of God's favorite subjects. He created us for relationship. In fact, if you go to the very beginning and after creating Adam, God decided that it was not good for Adam to be alone. And so he created a partner for him, Eve. And when you think of the church, we are God's called out and called together people. The church is God's family. And so it's important that we don't view Christianity as an individual faith, but as a collective faith, where community and relationships are important. And from a practical perspective, I know that there are many who are not actively involved in a home group or a small group of some sort. And so my simple encouragement to you today will be to think about the friendships and the relationships that you have, or maybe don't have, And either make an effort to go deeper or to resolve to make living in deeper relationships a priority in 2014. And so we're going to look at this passage that Mel read for us from Mark chapter 2 verses 1 through 12. And it is, you know, in a sense one of those Sunday school passages. If you grew up in the church going to Sunday school, you probably have heard many lessons about um, the four friends who brought their paralyzed friend on a mat and lowered him through the roof and into where Jesus was so he could heal him. And this morning, I'm not going to so much look about, talk about uh, Jesus and his authority here and, and the, the um, kind of the, the debate or the, the situation he got into then with the teachers of the law. But I want to look at it from the perspective of friendship. And, and what was it that uh, these four guys demonstrated? And so in order to do that, I want to just take us back to that scene a little bit. And look at this scene from the life of Christ. And I want us just to think about it and try to picture this scene for ourselves. I mean, we are 2,000 years removed. We're removed by, by time and space. And so it's a little bit hard for us. But it's always good for us to engage our minds and just to think a little bit about what was actually happening. And so we understand here that the news of Jesus was spreading fast. People were... Um, sharing about Jesus and what he was doing. And, and just before this passage, and at the end of chapter 1, Jesus heals a man of leprosy and then says, now go, but don't tell anybody. And of course, the man healed of leprosy, he can't contain himself. He's got to tell somebody. And so he starts telling everybody about what Jesus had done for him. And so it turns out then that the, the sort of Jesus' reputation as a healer and as a miracle worker was, was just skyrocketing. And, 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 and he couldn't even enter into a town without um, being uh, surrounded uh, by people. 
So here he comes into uh, Capernaum. And very quickly, the people heard that he had entered Capernaum. Jesus is here. Did you hear? Jesus is coming. And so everybody starts to flock. And he finds himself in a, in a home. We don't know whose home it was. But uh, he's there in a home teaching. And because people knew that he was in his home, they just started to gather around this home. And probably as many that could fit in went in. And others were peering through the windows. And before long, a very large crowd had gathered all around the outside. Well, into this scene walk four four men and their friends. Or one, sorry, four men and their friend. A paralytic. A man who was paralyzed. Just think for a moment what it would have meant to be a paralytic in the first century. Likely would have just lived on a mat, had nowhere to go. You needed someone to feed him to carry him, to move him around, to clothe him. Uh, Nothing could be done for him medically. There were no advances in technology that he might be able to to use in some way to, to, uh, to help get himself around. And so there was no way to contribute to society in any meaningful way. And all he could then do was just sit by the roadside and beg. He, in essence, had nothing except for Some amazing friends. And these friends, I believe, teach us some things about community. Because here was this man, completely and totally dependent on others for help. Incredibly vulnerable. He had to be carried around on his mat. Uh, John Ortberg coins this phrase, he calls it the fellowship of the mat. And I like that, I want you to think about that. The fellowship of the mat. And he says that this fellowship happens... Whenever humans, human beings love and accept and serve each other in the face of weakness and need. So the fellowship of the mat happens whenever human beings love and accept and serve each other in the face of weakness and need. And so for this paralytic, his need was obvious. I mean, you could just look at him and you knew exactly what his physical need would be. Human beings' needs are not always so obvious, are they? They're not always visible from the outside. Because people can be hurting. People can be hurting spiritually. They can be hurting relationally. We have, we have no idea the dynamics in some people's families or their homes. Even as, as we go through Christmas, we realize that for most people, we celebrate and it's a great time. But for those that are hurting because of lost relationships or grieving the loss of, loss of, a, of a loved one or are in, in conflict in some way, it just raises the tension of that. But they're not going to say it because it's Merry Christmas. And so everybody smiles and we just kind of continue on because we can't tell the pain that people are carrying. Sometimes people carry tremendous emotional pain. They don't want to be vulnerable in sharing that, and so they keep to themselves and retreat from from being around other people. His friends, the four men, they then begin to wonder, maybe, maybe if we just take them to Jesus... Maybe if we bring him to Jesus, if we, if we somehow get him in the, the closest vicinity of Jesus, he'll look on him 
and he'll take pity on him, and he'll heal him. That was their answer for their hurting friend, to bring him to Jesus. And incidentally, that really is, without sounding cliche, that's the answer for our hurting friends, aren't they? That we bring them to Jesus. And so they pick him up and they bring him to Jesus. But they encounter a problem as they approach this home. Because of this large, huge crowd that had gathered, they can't get in. They can't go get to, to see Jesus. And as they're standing there, carrying their friend, wondering what they ought to do, they start to look around, and, I, and I'm thinking one of their friends says, I got an idea. We can't go through the door, there's too many people. We can't pass them through the window because there's too many people. But look it up there on the roof. It's just mud and straw and reeds and whatever else is holding that thing together. I bet you we could get up there and we could dig through that roof and we could, we could lower the mat down right where Jesus is. We're going to bring our friend to Jesus. And you sense in these guys that there was desperation. I mean, they could have just stepped back and said, well, we'll just wait until the crowd disperses. We'll just wait, because sooner or later, Jesus is going to come out of this place. And then we're going we're to catch. We'll just wait here. But no, they are too desperate for that. They have to get their friend to Jesus. And they're absolutely convinced that he can do something, and that, our, that their friend needs him. And so they go up on the roof, and they start to dig through it. That's what the scripture says. And so you can sort of picture them on their hands and knees, and they're they're using their hands and punching the ground. Whatever they're doing, they're digging this hole in the roof. And I'm picturing if I'm the guy in the house, or maybe I'm the owner of the house, I start to feel like, hey, wait a minute, where's that dirt coming from? What, what is that? And all of a sudden, you like you see a little bit of daylight and then you see an arm through there and you're like hey wait a minute that's my roof what are you doing up there but they persist and they take jesus on his mat and they lower or sorry they take their friend and lower them down lower him down in front of jesus and jesus says something very interesting or the scripture says that jesus saw their faith. And that may not seem that significant to you, but it jumped out at me for this reason. It wasn't just Jesus saw his faith. He saw the faith of the community. He saw the faith of these four men. And, and it was their faith that said, if we just bring them to Jesus, our friend is going to be healed. And so he turns to the paralyzed man. But he doesn't first deal with the obvious. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. So in essence, he heals him spiritually first. And because he does that, because he makes this declaration, you know, your, your son, sins are forgiven, oh, the teachers of the law right away, they're up in arms, are like, who is this man who thinks he can do this? This is blasphemy. This is wrong. And of course, Jesus gets into it with them a little bit, and then he says, well, what do you think is easier? To say your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But to prove his point, he says, take up your mat and walk. 
and he does. And it's interesting how it then ends, right? The paralytic, here's the answer, he got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. The faith of a community brings healing to this paralyzed man. So what are some things that we can learn about community from this? What are some principles? And I'll just kind of run through these five fairly quickly. Number one, we all have mats. Did you get that? We all have mats. Because I think in some ways the mat here is a picture of human brokenness and imperfection. It's what's not normal about me. It's that part of us that we don't want anyone else to know about. But the irony is is that, that healing only becomes possible when we allow others to see our mat. Maybe our mat is an explosive temper. Maybe our mat is a terrible secret. Maybe our mat are, are just personal struggles. Maybe we struggle with loneliness or the fear of failure or just fear itself or anxiety and and all of these other things that we might fear. These things that we struggle with cause pain in our lives, but man, we, we can't tell anybody about them. We don't want anybody to know. But if we just admit it, that we all have mats, and my mat looks maybe a little bit different than your mat, but we all have mats. And so my question for you is this. Not, what are you doing about your mat? But, who is carrying your mat for you? Who are the people around you that do know your weaknesses and your struggles? You see, our mats are usually what we are least proud of and most likely to hide. And we're convinced that if other people knew about our mats, that they would avoid us. But you know what? That's the irony of the mat. It's our mats that provide the connecting points for deeper relationships. Romans 12, 3, the Apostle Paul writes, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. You see, when we become vulnerable and we do share those things that we're struggling with with others, we tend to have a hardwired response of having compassion for one another. And we care because, man, you know what? I didn't know that about you. I'm glad you shared that with me. Now I know how I can pray for you. Now I know how I can walk with you. Now I know how I can encourage you. And so we can come alongside one another. But be warned, right? Mats are often heavy and awkward. And so sometimes it's not easy to be a true friend that has a very difficult mat. But yet we're called into those kind of relationships. And we all have mats. So let's not think of ourselves more highly like we don't have a mat. Let's acknowledge that we do have a mat. Excuse me. Secondly, we must be intentional about community. We must be intentional about it. 
You see, for the paralytic in this story, the development of friendships didn't just happen by accident. There were obvious barriers to cross. There would have been attitudes towards physical challenges or the belief that if people suffered physically, there was a spiritual problem. And so not only did he have a physical problem, people thought, well, it must be his sin that caused this physical problem, and and so do we really want to have anything to do with him? So there were all these barriers. This man was very needy. And still, these four, they chose to become his friends. And you know that? That is an absolute key. Because if you want to experience deeper community, you can't just expect it to come to you. You have to be intentional about it. You have to make relationships a high priority. Right? If you feel like, man, I don't have any really good close personal friends. Well, then become a good close personal friend. Make it um, a big rock priority. Have you ever heard that analogy? Like where um, a professor, he had a, a glass jar and uh, gave his students a, a test. He said, well, you got all these small rocks and medium rocks and big rocks and you need to get this all in the, in the jar. And of course, if they put all the small rocks in and all the, the medium rocks in, there was no room for the big rocks, the important things. But if you put the big rocks in first, make those the priority then you can put the other things in and they just kind of fill in around it. And so those, that's true of any of the things that are important in our lives. We have to make them a big rock priority. And I think for all of us, because Christianity was never meant to be kind of an individual faith, we have to make relationships one of those priorities. That we say, I am dedicating time to do this. John Ortberg writes about this. Ironically, he says, we tend to devote massive amounts of time to making money, running errands, and succeeding at our jobs. But we neglect giving our most valuable possession, time, to the experience for which we were created, community. Is that true? We can spend our time doing all sorts of things, But then when it comes to that very thing that we were created for, community, we give it our leftovers. And what do you think is the biggest barrier to experiencing community? When you think about putting things into your life, it is just that, right? Life. It's the pace of life. It's the fact that we can tend to be so crazy busy, right? I I know I'm guilty of this. And I'll say to people, say, you know, we need to get together sometime. Have you done this? And then three months, four months, six months. It's like, we were supposed to get together, weren't we? Because we just don't have the time and we're so busy, uh, frantic um, in, in our time. You can't do community in a hurry. It takes time. You see, there are some barriers that are very simple and obvious, right? Just like the roof to those four guys. They went, how are we going to get them in here? That roof, that's a barrier. How are we going to overcome that? What are the obvious things that are right in front of us sometimes? And I hate to even say this because I'm guilty as anyone on this. used to be TV, I think. But now it's a bigger problem, isn't it? It's just screen in general. It's like a new parenting term, right? How much screen do you allow your children to have? Because what kind of screens do they have? They got their iPod Touch, 
They got their iPads, or the family's iPad. They got their computer, and they have the TV. It's crazy, right? We are so connected. I, I just, I think it was this week, I read a statistic that 50% of people who own a smartphone have them with them 24-7. So those of you who've put your phone on your, beside your bed, and you're not quite fast asleep yet, and the little alert goes off that you got a text, or an email, or anything else, what do you, what do, you do? You look, right? It's like, oh, I wonder who that could be, you know? It's like, never mind, it's bedtime, I'm going to bed, I'm not going to respond now anyways, what, whatever it is. But that's part of the problem, is that we spend so much time, Facebook, social media, whatever it is, that we've become so individualized, even though we think that that's sort of relating, are we really carrying each other's mats when we do that? Do we really spend the time that we need to? Ephesians 5, 15 and 16, I think is a good word for us this morning. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity. And so we simply have to ask ourselves, with anything that we're doing, is this a wise use of my time? And if it helps to build relationships, if, it, if, it's, in, if it's engaging in community, then I have to say absolutely yes, that is a wise use of our time. But we'll have to think about that, about how we can be intentional about community. Thirdly, True love will cause us to go to great lengths. True love will cause us to go to great lengths. You see, the friends in this story, they were totally devoted. They want to serve their friend with great determination, a boldness. They're, 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 they persevere in, 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 in the face of this enormous crowd. And that is true of any community, that community gets built by servants when we serve one another. And you, you notice there's a major difference between being friendly and being a friend. Have you ever noticed that? Telemarketers can be really friendly on the phone, right? Until they say, well, how are you this evening, Mr. Yonke? And right away I know they're not my friend. Because if they were my friend, they would say, Mr. Janky, that's how you pronounce my name. So I'm almost always immediately tipped off that this person on the phone isn't really my friend. He's pretending to be my friend. And he's being friendly. But it's very different than being a friend. And most of us, I would say, have many acquaintances, but few true friends. Right? And, and this, you know, this is kind of even a Facebook thing, right? We got friends. And, 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 I mean, there are friends on my friend list that I've never spoken to in years. They're not the first people I'm going to go and share my mat with, right? They're, they're just out there. But can we have those close, true friends? Because true love will go great distances. Here's a definition of family that I read. A group which possesses and implements an irrational commitment to the well-being of its members. A group which possesses and implements an irrational commitment to the well-being of its members. 
You know what's irrational? Crashing through and digging through roofs to get your friend to Jesus. What kind of irrational things do we do for one another? Because when we do irrational things, it involves at least two things. It's noticing that there's a need and then actually doing something about it. We see the need and we respond. And I, when I do marriage counseling, I always use this definition of love as, a, as, a, as, a, as a, something that I hope is helpful for them to remember um, this couple as they're getting married. It's just this, accurately assessing the other person's needs and then adequately supplying those needs. So if you're in relationship with each other, you just need to look at it and say, well, what are your needs? And my response then is to help meet those needs. And you look at me and say, well, what are your needs? And then your response is to me. And and in doing that, we actively engage in relationship building and loving one another. In 1 John 3, 16 to 18, we're going to come to this in our our studies uh, in 1 John soon. But this has always been a very penetrating passage for me. Verses 16 and 18. We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. It's a good word, isn't it? Just a reminder that love is going to cause us to go to great lengths. Another principle of community that we see here is this. Trust is a necessity. Trust is a necessity. Think of the paralytic. I don't know how high this roof was, but he's got to entrust his physical care as they're lowering him, and I, I still don't know, like there's no mention of ropes or whatever they did. I don't know if they just reached down a long way or whatever they did, but they lowered him. And if you're the guy on the mat, aren't you a little bit worried that they're going to let go? The rope's going to break or something's going to happen? Trust is a necessity. We've probably all been to camps and different things where you've done a trust fall. You know what that is, right? Where you stand there, people behind you, and you're like, okay, I'm falling. Is anybody going to catch me, right? Well, it is, you know, I mean, we could demonstrate, but um, on the concrete. But, um, you know, that's the whole point, is if we're going to have relationships, we have to be able to trust each other, right? If I share this with you, you know, what are are they going to think about me? But if I'm sharing a confidence with another person, I want them to keep that in confidence, right? And so I have to be able to trust them. And I have, you know, there are probably untold numbers of people who have been hurt in relationships because they were vulnerable, they shared something about their lives, they kind of put their mat out there for a few others to see, and guess what? Somebody dropped the mat. And the response typically then is, fine, I was betrayed, I'm never going to trust anyone again. And it's so harmful to our growing up and maturing as followers of Jesus to not be able to trust one another. I had a 
wonderful opportunity in 2004 and 2005 to go through this leadership development program. And I will never forget the very first time we got, gathered together. It was, a, like, it was like a week-long kind of in-session thing. And the guy that was leading it said these words in, in essence. is a bit of a paraphrase, of course. But he says, this place, when we gather four times over the next two years, this is a safe harbor. And he was a sailor. He loved to sail. And, and so he talked about how often when they were out on the raging seas and a storm blew in and it just got unbelievable horrific there and when they could make their way and sail into a harbor that is protected from the waves and the elements that there was safety there and what he was saying was when we're gathered in this place this is a safe harbor and i know pastor ken shares this passion and vision for our church as well is that our church as a whole would just be a safe harbor that when people come who are hurting that have gone through traumatic experiences that that are dealing with difficult challenges in life or whatever, but that they could feel that that's a safe place. You know, at the close of every service, we just, we just say, if you want to come pray, come pray. And, and so I hope not a single person would ever go and go, hmm, I wonder what's going on with that person. Oh, it's a husband and wife. I wonder if there's a marriage problem. And, and it sort of becomes this thing to, to, to sort of, you know, talk about. But we, our response should be, God, I don't know what their problem is. I don't know what the issue is. They might be rejoicing over something. They might be dealing with some unbelievable challenges, but I'm going to pray for them right now because I know that you know. And it just becomes part of who we are, that we create this safe place where we can pray for one another. And in smaller relationships, in home groups or triads, where you can come together in relationship with other people, and you can share those struggles. You can share your mat and know without a shadow of a doubt that that's a safe harbor. It's a safe place. And nobody's going to talk about it. Nobody's going to spread rumors. They're going to come, and they're going to pray for you and encourage you. And so trust is absolutely important in building relationships. And lastly, spiritual growth is the priority. In Christian community, in Christian fellowship, if you will, it's a word maybe that we don't use as much, but it's a good word. It comes from the, the Greek word koinonia. It's, it's about experiencing Christ together. It's not just coming together and talking about the weather or talking about work, as, as important as those things might be. But it is about really understanding that what we're doing in relationships within the church is bringing one another to Jesus. Just like the four men grabbed the paralytic, lowered him through the roof, they were bringing him to Jesus. Because faith matters. Loving Jesus and loving others. And Jesus in that instance doesn't just see the physical need, but he sees the spiritual one. And so he starts there and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. He probably didn't expect that to be broadcast in front of everybody. But it was. Again, I quote John Ortberg. He says, but it's one of the things that happen when you get neck deep into community and Jesus is there in the middle of it. Being in community has a way of surfacing the sin issue. You see, when I'm alone, I can think of myself more highly than I ought to. But when I'm with others, then my own issues seem to surface rather quickly. John Vanier he uh, was the founder of the Larsh Communities, which is 
for those uh, communities with those who have developmental disabilities. And he says this, he says, while we are alone, we could believe we loved everyone. Now that we are with others, living with them all the time, we realize how incapable of loving, how much we deny to others, how closed in on ourselves we are. In community, we find our sin being talked about, yes, but also forgiven. You see, true friends care deeply about their friend's spiritual health. The, the things, that things are always right between them and God. Because we can say to one another, if, if someone is truly my friend, their deepest concern needs to be the well-being well, well of my character and of my soul. You see, that's the difference between a spiritual friendship and all the other relationships we might have. Because the goal is to foster a mutual love for Christ and a desire to grow together in Christ. And that may be frightening to kind of put ourselves out there. But it's also the greatest gift of all. Because isn't that what we really want to hear? You're forgiven, you're accepted, you're right with God. And I'm going to hold you accountable to that. I mean, when you think about this paralytic, I mean, what sins could he commit? What deadly sins might he have? Pride? Maybe some judgmentalism as those who walked by didn't help him and he kind of thought, oh, you know, what kind of follower of Jesus are you? Maybe his own lovelessness was something that he struggled with. The others in this house, the teachers of the law, people who are regarded as spiritual giants. In fact, they thought of themselves that way themselves. They apparently arrived on time because they were the ones that were in the house. They were the first ones there. But notice they didn't have any friends to bring to Jesus. It's ironic, isn't it? That those who were considered to be the most spiritual, apparently didn't know anyone who was hurting or needed Jesus. So simple question for you this morning as we close. Are you prepared to do whatever it takes to grow deeper in relationships? Again, to quote John Orberg, he says, the truth is, the more spiritually mature you grow, the more you will find your heart being drawn to people you want to reach out to people, especially those neglected by society or far from God. And so here Jesus heals the paralytic. And I believe the mat becomes this symbol of true friendship, of community. And can I just encourage you to make deep friendships a priority for 2014? If you're not already in a home group, send me a note. Check it off on the friendship book. Just let me know that that's an interest for you and we'll either find a group for you or create a new group. Whatever it takes, we want to do that because it's important that you find those kind of, kind of relationships. We also encourage something that we don't structure at all here at TCC. We just call them triads and there's a little sheet on the information uh, bro uh, rack out there that talks about triads and it's just three men or three women 
trying to meet together regularly to just to check in and say, where's your heart at in relationship to God? Find somebody that you can journey with together and do that. Let's pray together. Father, we have just gone through a, a remarkable time, and I pray that we would never lose the marvel of what it means that you are with us. That you valued the relationship that we had with us, that you had with us. That you sent your son Jesus to live among us, to teach us, to model for us, to be an example for us. And so Lord, we thank you even from this scene in the life of Jesus, as it unfolded before us today, to think about what it meant to bring a friend to Jesus, to help carry their mat. Lord, I pray that you would reveal to us the mats that we have, the things that we struggle with, but that we would not live in some sense of denial, but that we would acknowledge that we do all have a mat, and I have mine, and I have my struggles, and that I need friends at times to carry me. So Lord, I pray that in 2014, that we would grow deeper with one another, and with you. And that we would know that you are always with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.